Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Exodus chapters 18 through 20. Just three short chapters, but a lot of wonderful material here. In chapter 18, Jethro is going to bring Moses' wife Zipporah and his children to him. So that must have been a wonderful reunion to see his children and his wife again. And in the 19th chapter, this is where the Lord is preparing Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he wants to make them, verse 5 of the 19th chapter, a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And so there are going to be some things that they do to ritually prepare themselves to enter into the presence of the Lord. And the 19th chapter kind of ends with the images of Jehovah's mighty power, thunder and lightning and fire and smoke, and this idea that gazing upon God is a holy kind of thing. Which brings us then to the 20th chapter. Because if we're going to be a peculiar people, we need a law. We need a standard that we follow to become a peculiar people. So in chapter 20, the Lord reveals his law. And it is a wonderful law for all of us. There's something about the Ten Commandments that applies to all people of all time. But we're going to look in this podcast at the fact that the Lord gives commandments to each generation that is appropriate for them. So we're going to jump into our generation and look at the specific laws that the Lord has given us in our day. There's a lot of thou shalts and thou shalt nots in the Doctrine and Covenants that are very significant. So we'll take a look at the ancient Ten Commandments given to Moses on Sinai, but also some modern commandments given to Joseph Smith in Kirtland, Ohio. So with that, let's get into the 18th chapter. In chapter 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, shows up with his wife and his children. And that must have been a wonderful little reunion after being apart while Moses freed Israel from Pharaoh. But chapter 18 addresses a marvelous doctrine and a skill set for leaders in every capacity. I would suggest parents in the home as well as bishops, stake presidents in the church, as well as business leaders and political leaders all over could learn some wonderful lessons from Exodus chapter 18, Jethro's comments on delegation. Now, let's tackle this two ways. First of all, let's look at what Jethro tells Moses about why he should delegate. What benefit does it bring to the leader to delegate? So in verse 14 of chapter 18 of Exodus, Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people and said, what are you doing? What is this thing that you do? Why do you sit thou alone and all the people stand by thee? And Moses, bless his heart, he says, a good-hearted leader who says, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Do you see Moses' desire to bless the people? I want to help, so I make myself available to help the people. The problem is, it's not a good thing for a leader to do. As tender-hearted as Moses is, it's going to cost the people a good leader. And the second thing we'll look at is they're going to miss out on opportunities to serve that will help them grow. So starting in verse 17, Jethro teaches the lesson. He says to Moses, "'The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone.'" You don't need to tackle the whole task yourself. You are going to wear out. I wonder how many of you listening to this podcast are overwhelmed with your church calling, overwhelmed with your parental responsibilities, overwhelmed with a business assignment or a political appointment, and it's too much. It's too heavy. And you are not going to be a blessing to the people you love if you are too worn out to serve them. 
And so Jethro says, this is not good. It is not good. Bless your heart. I know that you love them. I know that your heart reaches out to them and you want to bless them, but this is not good because you're going to wear out. And then where will you be when they need you? So I think that's a lesson for all of us. Now, this is a lesson that God clearly understands. If you look at the plan of salvation, it is a participatory plan. And how many things could God do much better than we do, but he deliberately allows us to participate in this plan? You know, Bryce, I see that with Joseph Smith. He was always training people because he wasn't going to be around forever. And I remember a stake president telling me this one time when he was called to be a stake president, he was told, your job is to train the next stake president. You've got to go and train these individuals so they know how to run things. And I think that's really how the church is working. We're always trying to train leaders. I mean, there's a reason why 12-year-olds give talks in church. And there's a reason why 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds get called to preach the gospel full-time. Yeah. Clearly, they probably are not the most capable in spreading the gospel to the world. But the Lord calls on them for a reason. I mean, he called a 14-year-old out of the grove and said, you know what, I've got some work for you to do. And I mean, clearly the Lord uses these young people and he believes they can do it. And we're going to mess up along the way, but that's, I guess, the beauty of it too, right? That is the beauty of it. I love what Jesus did in the spirit world. I think it typifies exactly what we're trying to talk about. In section 138, Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, saw that Jesus went into the spirit world, but was only there for a brief time. And so he's puzzled. How could Jesus accomplish so much in the short period of time he was there? So verse 28 says, And I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. Now, do you see the application? Jesus had to do a lot in a short period of time. And the assumption here is the load was too heavy in that period of time. So what did Jesus do? Verse 29, as I wondered, my eyes were opened and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of the dead. Do you see how Jesus tackles a heavy load? He delegates. Because otherwise you're going to wear out and you won't serve the people that you love when you're exhausted. So learn the great skill of delegation to say, I can't do this alone. So I'm going to, quote, from Doctrine and Covenants, appoint messengers clothed with power and authority, give them the tools they need to succeed, and then send them forth to do the job. It's only when we spread the load around can we carry it. Yeah, I like that idea, Bryce. I really like the idea of giving them the tools that they need to succeed. As an illustration, my wife and I found a great way to teach our kids some really good money management skills. We actually got this idea from our dentist because he did it with his kids. And so starting at the age of 14, Sonia and I shifted the money that we had budgeted for their clothes to their individual debit accounts. We gave them a debit card and we said, hey, guys, listen, this is your clothes budget. Now you can add to it, you can spend it, you can save it. It's yours. You decide how you spend the money on your clothes. Like we're giving you the power to decide. And it was great because then we're no longer the bad guys if we said no to a really expensive pair of shoes because it's different when it's his money. Yeah. And then the fascinating thing, my oldest son, I'll never forget. My son came home and he had bought these Michael Jordan shoes that they were like two-year-old models, but they were brand new. And they were like $30 instead of, you know, the $120. And he held them up like he had just won a trophy. And he said, look what I got for $30. And so we found as parents that it was different if it was their money. And they actually did, many of them, shop for sales. And it really took a big load off of us as parents. 
giving them the power to choose taught them a lot about budgeting and how to make things work. And it really took a load off of us as parents. Yeah. Let them make choices, give them the power to do so, and they'll succeed. And it'll take a load off of you. You're no longer the bad guy. Brilliant example. Yeah. I remember Elder Bednar talked about, it's kind of a pain to teach your son how to mow the lawn because he doesn't get the lines right, or maybe he misses a spot. But if you spend the time in training him, now that's less of a load on the parents. And that really is parenting, but this is everything. It is. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't do it is I don't want to take the time to empower you to do it, little realizing that if I took that time and empowered you that would be a a bigger load off of my shoulders, and I would have much more time to do other things that I need to do. So I love the instructions in verse 19. He says to Moses, you be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring this causes unto God, and teach them ordinances and laws, show them the way they need to walk, and the work that they must do. In other words, there are things, Moses, that only you can do. So you do the things that are Moses things. You do the things that they can't do. You do the things that you must do. But everything else, the things that you're spending so much time doing that many people could do, that you need to pass on to them. So number two, provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Let them judge the people at all seasons, and let it be that every great matter they shall bring to you. What only you can do, you should do. This has historical significance as well. In the 14th century, there's actually a decree from the Pharaoh in Egypt where this very thing was given. He said, quote, you are to seek out persons of integrity, people of good character. And then he writes that they should be placed in the towns of Egypt. And so in the 14th century, the Pharaoh in Egypt did this. He put people in all these towns to do this because the Pharaoh couldn't do it all. And we see the same thing in the ninth century with King Jehoshaphat. If you go to Second Chronicles 19, 5 through 8, it's the same kind of thing. Don't take bribes, act with care, make sure there is justice. We have to have people in every town. So whether you're looking into the culture of Judah in the ninth century BC or the 14th century in Egypt, this kind of thing was happening in the ancient world because if you're going to effectively govern people, one person can't do it all. And it works. It really does lighten the load for leaders, and so it works. So in verse 25, Moses follows Jethro's advice. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. They judged the people at all seasons. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. So we have talked about the blessing for the leader in delegation. But let's talk about the blessing for those who receive the assignment and are given an opportunity to do something scary and new and unusual, but they get to strengthen. I would suspect most of you don't delegate because you want the job done right and you know you can do the job right. And so I'm just going to mow the lawn because I know I can make the lines perfectly straight and my child will not. But there is something about robbing them of the opportunity to learn to get the line straight themselves. One of our sons wouldn't buy clothes. (laughs) He just bought candy. And so then after a year, his socks were all nasty and ratty. And so you take a risk as a parent because maybe they're just going to buy candy. But it's the same idea. It's like you're not getting the line straight. They're not going to be straight. Sometimes your child's going to buy candy instead of clothes. But it's like that's also part of the messiness. That's right. right. Now, I know this isn't about delegation, but this quotation is very applicable. Boyd K. Packer once said the following, There aren't many places in which a leader can use a person who is struggling for worthiness. Unfortunately, it seems that those few situations in which we could use them to offer prayers, to make brief responses, to bear testimony, are almost invariably reserved for the active. Indeed, we sometimes go to great lengths to import speakers and participants to the loss of our hungry ones. 
At a ward sacrament meeting I recently attended, a sister had been invited to sing whose husband was not active in the church. He was, however, at the meeting. The bishop wanted a very special program for this occasion. His first announcement was, quote, Brother X, my first counselor, will give the opening prayer. His second counselor gave the closing prayer. Now listen to Boyd K. Packer's comment. How unfortunate, I thought. The three men in the bishopric struggle with such concerns over the spiritually sick. Then take the very medicine that would make those people well— activity and participation, and consume it themselves in front of the needy. In other words, I know you could probably do the job better than someone else. And the lines would be straighter if you mowed the lawn. But you need them to be able to straighten the lines eventually. And the only way that's going to happen is if you give them a chance to mow the lawn. Yes, the first couple might not go well. If you delegate an assignment to someone, it may not go as well as it probably would have gone had you taken the assignment. But you gave them an opportunity to grow. Don't take the very medicine that would bless other people. Let them mow the lawn, even if it's a crooked line, and they'll get better. But they'll never grow if you don't give them a chance to grow. Part of leadership is to get the task done. But the other part of leadership is empowering the people you lead to be able to get the job done. Let me give you a wonderful example of this from Jesus again. In 3 Nephi chapter 26, Jesus is teaching some wonderful truths. If you look at the first few verses, he's teaching things that have never been taught, deep and wonderful truths. But then comes the moment where he wants to teach even greater truths. And guess what he does? He opens the mouths of the children. Jesus steps out of the limelight, and he lets children teach. He touches them. He opens their tongue and allows them to speak. And it says that the children taught, quote, greater things than Jesus taught. He allowed someone else to have the moment of greatness, a child. And I think that's what delegation is about. It's, I could take the limelight here. I could plan the activity, and it would be phenomenal, and everyone would thank me. Or I could empower someone else, allow them to plan the activity, and allow them the growth and the opportunity to do a great job. So whatever your capacity, whatever role you play, would you ponder, what am I holding on to that others could do? There are things that only you can do, only you should do. But there are many things, there are many loads you carry that could very much be given to someone else. And that would bless you, and it would bless them. How even the primary class that you teach could help carry the load that you carry. There's many things primary children could do that would lighten your load, and they would love to do it. But would you also ponder the benefit that that would bring to someone else in giving them an opportunity, even if they mow the lawn and the lines are horribly crooked, even if they break the sprinkler heads, which is what my children often do the first time they mow the lawn. I know I'm going to be replacing sprinkler heads every time a new child mows the lawn, but that's okay because they need the opportunity to grow. So that's Exodus chapter 18, a wonderful gift to all of us in all of our different capacities. Another thing on Exodus 18 is it just, to me, it teaches that we should put first things first. And you can put the quadrants with urgent and not urgent, important and not important. And you want to definitely work on the things that are important and urgent. But really, you want to work on quadrant two, things that are not urgent but important. Okay, let's go to Exodus 19. 
In Exodus 19, we read that it's the third month in the very first verse when they get to the foot of Mount Sinai. That's verse 1. And then it says that they camped before the mount. And then verse 3 says, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And so, this is the beginning of the preparation to receive the covenant. The beginning of the covenant portion is going to be in Exodus 20, and that's where we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. But this chapter really is laying out the Lord's desire for what he wants with this. Like, why does he want to make a covenant? What does he want to do with Israel? And some scholars look at this as not only given to Israel, but to the whole world, because Israel is outside of the national boundaries of any country. This is in the wilderness. And so in a way, this is given to Israel, but it's also given to the world. And so many have looked at the Ten Commandments and some of the things the Lord says in Exodus 20 to be universal in their application. And so I want to just invite you to think about how the Ten Commandments can be universal in their application. I certainly see some of the commandments in these codes to be very specific to the time period in which they're given and given to the specific people of Israel. But I also see some universality in here. So let's talk about verse 5 for a second. And it says, you shall be a peculiar treasure. That word for peculiar treasure, the Hebrew word is segula. And that word denotes a treasure or a valued property. And it's a cognate of an Akkadian word, which means acquisition or valued property or also beloved. And I want to make the connection here that what God is saying is, I want you to be different, but you're going to be a special or peculiar treasure. I'm going to liken that unto a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, the context of this is the Lord's talking about the things that happened in Missouri and the persecution that they're undergoing. But if you look in verse 3 of section 101, the Lord says, Yet I will own them, and they shall be mine in that day, when I shall come to make up my jewels. Therefore they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. Now this is talking about the saints in Missouri, and they're clearly called the children of Israel, we believe as Latter-day Saints that we are descendants of this tradition of this family of Israel, and the Lord is calling them his jewels. And a lot of times when I teach the Missouri period, I like to talk about, well, what makes jewels? What makes a diamond, right? The Lord takes something simple like coal, and over time and pressure and sometimes heat, these jewels are created. And so I find it interesting that he calls them jewels, and then in the next verse, he likens these jewels to Abraham. And then there's some really great quotes by Joseph Smith where he says, essentially, can we think that we can be qualified to live in the same place as Abraham if we haven't had similar experiences, if we haven't had similar tests? You know, that reminds me of something that Joseph Smith wrote in that letter from Liberty Jail, Mike, that I love and I've thought a lot about. He says, inasmuch as God hath said he would have a tried people that he would purge them as gold. Now we think that this time he has chosen his own crucible, wherein we have been tried. And we think if we get through with any degree of safety and shall have kept the faith, that it will be a sign to this generation altogether sufficient to leave them without excuse. And we think also it will be a trial of our faith equal to that of Abraham and that the ancients will not have whereof to boast over us in the day of judgment, as being called to pass through heavier afflictions, that we may hold an even weight in the balance with them. In other words, I think he's trying to say that being faithful to whatever challenges come in our day, 
allows us to hold an even weight. But we do have to pass that test. We do have to be purged and be faithful in that tribulation the way Abraham was faithful. But I really like that idea of being a peculiar people because we pass the tests given to each one of us. Yeah. Not only are you a treasure and not only are you jewels, but there are several chapters in Exodus that talk about these jewels that are made into the breastplate of the high priest. The high priest is going to wear 12 jewels on his chest, and each jewel is going to have engraved on it the name of each of the tribes of Israel. And then on his shoulders, he's going to have two onyx stones, one on each shoulder, and six tribes will be named on each one of those. And so the high priest is going to wear literally these jewels on his shoulders, which represent the tribes, and he's going to wear them on his heart. And then when you couple that with where John talks about the Savior wearing a robe that is without seam, and that robe is a code word. It's a connecting word to show us that the Savior, by wearing that robe, is the great high priest. And then Paul will talk about in Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest. So if we connect all these ideas, we have the Savior as the great high priest, symbolically wearing the tribes, the jewels on his heart and on his shoulders. In other words, he bears us and we are right next to his heart. We are his segula. That is the end game. That's what God wants with us. He wants to have that kind of relationship. And if we understand that, it helps us get past some of the clunky things in these chapters. For example, Exodus 20 verse 5 talks about God being a jealous God. And that word's connected to this idea of being red in the face. He gets jealous when we cheat on him, so to speak. That when Israel goes after other gods or they forget God, God is jealous because they are, quote, whoring after false gods. Well, the relationship is a covenant one of intimacy, of marriage. And God is trying to say, no, this is more than just, I'm your king and you obey me. This is different. I want to make you my treasure. I want to put you on my heart and I'm going to carry you. And so then in the next verse, in verse 6, he says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, that's going to be a little bit complex because the narrative as it comes to us now, as we have it, and I take this as being edited, I don't look at this as complete, but the story as it is told in the Old Testament is that the Levites are the Kohen or the Kohanim. They, They are the ones who are the priests, the Levites. But my take on that verse, verse 6 is God does not want to make one tribe a kingdom of priests. He wants to make all of Israel a kingdom of priests. And then we get to the book of Revelation, and I'm going to throw this out there. I think it's a kingdom of priests and priestesses, kings and queens. And to me, that's connected to the temple. In the temple, we learn that that is God's endgame. He wants to make us his treasure and a kingdom of kings and queens, priests and priestesses. And so what does that denote? Kingdom denotes, I mean, in the Latter-day Saint context, family. Your family is your kingdom and the right to rule and reign. But priests and priestess, that has to do with being holy and also approaching God in a religious sense. And so what do we have? I think in the Bible, we have an edited version of this where it's the Levites. But I think if we read the Book of Mormon, because I think Nephi understands first Israelite temple, pre-apostate stuff, Nephi talks about him being a, quote, king and priest, and he works in both capacities. And the great king and priest, of of course, is Jesus, and he is trying to show us how to do this. And so I really like verse 5 and 6. I like to connect it to ideas that John's teaching and that Paul's teaching in Hebrews and that we see in Revelation and that we see in the temple, because I think if we begin with the end in mind, if we know where God wants to take us, some of this stuff's going to make more sense. So The rest of the chapter talks about them preparing. Verse 10 talks about them washing their clothes. I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to say, I think that also includes washing their bodies. They need to be clean to approach God physically as well as spiritually. And then there's boundaries, that there's like this tripartite distinction, as some scholars call it. In other words, there's a distinction on Mount Sinai. The highest is where God is seen, so that would be similar to the Holy of Holies. The midpoint where the priests go, that would be the holy place. And then the foot of the mount would be the outer courtyard. In other words, what is Sinai? It's a typological temple complex. Next, 
I want to briefly talk about verse 15. When the Lord is saying that what he's saying in verse 15 of Exodus 19, my take on that verse is that is cultural. There's a lot of cultural perspectives when it comes to intimacy and approaching God. I don't think um, having marital intimacy is in any way unholy, but I do see that culturally in the ancient world, uh, there were some teachings that had those assumptions. And I think sometimes if we take verse 15 and we try to apply it, and I think some early Christians did, in early Christianity, there seemed to be this idea that if you spent your days in celibacy, you were somehow a super Christian. You were somehow more holy. And that is not our doctrine. Our doctrine is clearly connected to all the things El Shaddai is saying in Genesis, which is be fruitful and multiply. I mean, it's the first commandment God gives Adam and Eve. And having children is holy and is good in the right context of marriage. And so I see verse 15, to me, I see this as kind of a cultural thing. And then the, the end of chapter 19 discusses like the smoke and the fire and the mountain quaking. And then verse 20 talks about the Lord coming down and that gazing upon God could cause you to perish. I mean, that's verse 21. And I think as Latter-day Saints, we can read this and say, well, God's presence is more glorious than the sun. So there has to be a change that takes place upon the person seeing God for them to endure his presence. And today we call that transfiguration. They have to be changed in a sense to come into God's presence. So with that, Moses is coming into God's presence and going to have this experience. But then notice the end of the chapter, verse 24, the Lord said unto him, away, get thee down and thou shalt come up and thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. And then verse 1 of the next chapter talks about, well, these are the words that God said unto them. So just know that in scholarship, there's a lot of scholars that say, hey, this is fragmented. Like, what's going on? Is he on the mountain? Is he coming down? And then in the 20th chapter reporting what he saw, what do you do with verse 24? Because the bottom line is verse 24 is clunky. Next week, when we get into Exodus 24, we're going to see the entire chapter kind of talking about this idea of Moses coming into God's presence, but not only him, but Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel come into God's presence. But verse 24 of chapter 19 says, well, that that's not the case. And so just know that I'm just acknowledging the complexity and that it doesn't all match up. And I'm just saying, that's okay. If we try to make the Bible always line up, we're going to run into problems. It's like trying to unify the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. There exactly. is no way we can harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They just give different accounts of the Savior's life. Exactly. I, I think that's a perfect way to say it. Before we leave Exodus 19, can I give you a little homework? After you read that chapter, would you go read section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 17 through 27? Because that's where the Lord's going to make a commentary on what we just talked about in chapter 19. He's going to declare that the greater priesthood administereth the gospel, holds the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom, and even the key of the knowledge of God. Then he's going to say that wonderful verse about, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifested unto men in the flesh. That's the setting for this commentary. I think the suggestion here is that Moses was preparing them for temple ordinances. He was preparing them to participate in the ordinances that manifest the power of God. And then the Doctrine and Covenant says this, Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people. How many times in Exodus 19 do you find the word sanctify? That Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. And the very next word is, but. They hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Therefore he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. 
There's something that they didn't do that studying the Old Testament should compel us to do. They didn't qualify to go up and see the face of God. For whatever reason and whatever the circumstances were, they wouldn't. They hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. And so I think the Lord is pleading with us in the latter days to understand that if you sanctify yourself, you can come into his presence, into his rest, and into his glory. Don't make the same mistake as the Israelites and hold back. When he says, sanctify yourselves and wash yourselves, he means that. And we should sanctify ourselves and wash ourselves and anoint ourselves. We should change the clothing that we're wearing and put on the coats of skins given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so ponder what didn't happen in Israel that should happen in our lives, in our temples today. That's really good. I think adding DNC 84 kind of gives balance to these ideas. So with that, let's get into Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Now, in 1816, John Adams wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson, and he said, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. So, I mean, the founding fathers, at least John Adams, took this stuff really seriously. And I I do see the Ten Commandments, Bryce, as having application today. I think that they're as relevant now as they were then. I love that the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants that whoever obeys the laws of God, quote, hath no need to break the laws of the land. I think that's very significant. If you're going to obey a higher law, there's no need to break the lower law. And so we're going to talk in a few minutes about modern-day commandments, even 10 of them. But they in no way replace the ancient Ten Commandments. I think those who obey the modern commandments hath no need to break any commandments of any other dispensation. Yes, I think we could look on the Ten Commandments as very basic, and we've been given a higher law, but there's no need to break the lower law. And so let's go over the ten that Moses was given on Sinai. We find the first one in verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one is in verse 4, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And then he expounds on that one through verse 6. So don't worship any other gods and don't form anything, a likeness of that God that you have in your presence and worship. I kind of geek out in the show notes about this. Clearly, verse 3, in the Hebrew language, God is acknowledging that other gods exist, and he says, essentially in the Hebrew, don't put them before my face. In other words, if I'm Moses and I'm looking at God, God is saying to me, don't put the gods of Egypt between us. They are to be behind him. And this is back to that idea we've talked about before of monolatry, that the early stuff in the Bible, the stuff that's the oldest, acknowledges that other gods exist. But for you, Israel, there's only Jehovah. Now that's going to shift when we get to the seventh century to there's only one God, those other gods don't even exist. And then the Christian writers are going to say, hey, those gods in Egypt, not only do they not exist, but if they do have power, they're demons. And so the way that people viewed God changed over time, which is to be understood. I mean, if we read this stuff historically, that's kind of how it played out. And so today, we don't obviously worry about the gods of Egypt, or I don't worry if Artemis is upset with me, or Apollo's mad that I did something. We kind of look at that as myth and not literal. But in the ancient world, they did have these conversations. That's how verse 3 kind of plays out. And so today, we would look at verse 3, and I think that in the talk by Spencer W. Kimball, The False Gods We Worship... Spencer W. Kimball would say, you put other gods before God when you say things like, well, I can't afford to pay tithing because I have a boat, or I can't go to church because I've got a golf appointment. In other words, you're putting other gods before him. I mean, in our secular world, I think that's how we would contextualize verse 3. So don't have any other gods and don't have an image to that god. In verse 7, he gives us number 3, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which has become known as don't swear and don't curse, which it certainly has a connotation to that. 
You know, Bryce, on that one, on Take the Lord's Name in Vain, I've got a really great story in the show notes by President Hinckley where he said a word he shouldn't have said and his mom washed his mouth out. And the reason why I like that story on so many levels is, hey, President Hinckley was once a kid, so it gives us hope, but it also shows, hey, we got to watch how we speak. But I think in the context of Exodus 20, verse 7, of taking God's name in vain, I think it had a different meaning. And I think one of the ways we could read this is, Don't use religion for vain things. Don't use God's name to do vain things. And so Martin Luther talked about this where he said, in his view, the sale of indulgences was taking God's name in vain. The people that were using God's name were doing things that he thought was unholy. And I would agree with Martin Luther on that regard. But I'm with you, Bryce. Today, we take verse 7 to mean don't use potty language. Don't use language that you couldn't use in front of your mother. Right. An interesting cross-reference in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, 61, and 62. The Lord says, Let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. For behold, verily I say unto you that many there are who are under this condemnation, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. I think that's kind of the gist of what was intended in the original Ten Commandments. It's don't assume to do things in God's name when you don't have God's authority to do it. Yeah. Okay, so now we've talked about taking God's name in vain. That's the third commandment. The fourth is to keep the Sabbath day. And then there's a bunch of stuff in there about, you know, not only should you not work, but verse 10 talks about don't make other people work. And why? Well, verse 11, because the Lord made the world, and on the seventh day he rested. Now, one comment that we ought to make about the Sabbath day is for 4,000 years, the Sabbath day was a memorial to God creating the earth and freeing them from Egypt. They remembered that God rested. They remembered that God did his work. When Jesus rose on the first day of the week, the Sabbath changed to remember his victory over death. So we still have the commandment to hallow the day and remember God on that day. But our emphasis today is that we remember Christ's victory over death on that day, which we celebrate on the first day of the week because that was the day he rose from the dead, not so much the seventh day, which God rested, and remember all that God did in the Old Testament. So there's a little bit of a twist in our day regarding the Sabbath day and why we honor it and what we remember. Now, those are the first four, and Jesus is going to summarize those four by saying that the great commandment is to love God with all your heart. The next six have to do with how we treat each other. And the first one is kind of a funny one if you look at the whole text of the Bible, because the Lord says in verse 12, commandment number five, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The reason why I think this is a little bit funny is because in that verse, well, your days being long upon the land actually has to do with the idea that if you aren't honoring your parents, they could actually kill you. So it's not an exodus, but if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, it says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, he won't hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out to the elders of the city and to the gate of his place. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. So what are they going to do? Verse 21, all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die. So thou shalt put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And so obviously we don't take this literally today. And I don't even know if they did take it literally that way back then, but it's in the text. And so I'm just acknowledging the complexity of it there. So now we get to the last five. So verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And then the 10th commandment, verse 17, thou shalt not covet. And then a whole list of things that we're not to covet. Now, when I teach uh, teenagers... I talk about how easy it is to remember these, 
And I've done this before with with mission prep and teaching young people as they're about to go on missions and say, hey, don't be overwhelmed by the Ten Commandments. It seems kind of complicated, but it's really as simple as just making up these rhymes. And so I'm going to go really quick through this. And if it works for you, great. I, I think it's great with kids. And it also helps, especially young people who think that they can't remember things. And you teach this mnemonic device and they're like, wait, I can, I actually can remember things. And so all you have to remember is these 10 rhymes, one son, two shoe, three tree, four door, five alive, six sticks, seven heaven, eight gate, nine sign, 10 hen. That's it. If you can remember that, you can remember the 10 commandments. And so one son, one son is the son of God is preeminent. So thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Son of God is preeminent. He's number one. Number one. Two shoe. If I take my shoe, I have my shoes on, and I step in a little bit of mud that's kind of soft, and I lift up my foot, it leaves this image, this imprint of my foot. And so the second commandment is no graven images. And then three, three is tree, and tree, trees have branches, and branches have leaves, and leaves have veins. So the third commandment is don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Four, and then I with four, I make a little, I take my hands and I put them together and I make a little church with a steeple and my thumbs are the door. So you can have to use your imagination what I'm doing right now with my hands. And I hold up my hands as a church with the door and the steeple and I open the door and inside are all the people. I know that's kind of cheesy, but kids remember it. And then I say, what do you do on the Sabbath day? You open the door to the church. You should go to church and worship the Lord. Five alive, if you do this, you'll stay alive, <laughs> honor your parents. And then I talk about Deuteronomy 21 and the kids laugh. Six sticks, if I hit somebody in the head with a stick a bunch of times, that they eventually will die, so don't do that. Don't kill. Seven heaven, now this one's tough, but with seven, I always say it rhymes with heaven, and the world talks about immorality as heavenly, but the Lord's like, Mm-mm, no, you can't live uh, the laws of heaven and commit adultery. So that is a little clunky, but that's what I do with seven heaven. Uh, eight, we're going to make up for it here. Eight rhymes with gate, and gates are made out of steel, so don't steal. Nine, nine can be sign or it can be crime because it rhymes with both. If I'm a witness to a crime, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth if I'm summoned to court. Also, nine rhymes with sign. And so if I'm driving down the freeway and I see a big billboard that says, hey, smoke Virginia Slims and it will make you young and pretty, we know that's not true because we'll actually do the opposite. And so it is bearing false witness or it is lying. So nine sign or nine crime. And then finally, 10. 10 rhymes with hen. If Bryce has a hen that lays golden eggs and Bryce is just like, man, he's going on vacation everywhere and he has a private jet and every day he gets a solid gold egg and he's just got money everywhere. I am so jealous of Bryce and I want his hen. Why? Because of what his hen can give me. I'm coveting that hen Bryce has and Bryce can I just have an egg, please? I just want one. And so it's super quick. And then I just say, okay, guys, what's the eighth commandment? And I always do that one first because it's easy, eight gate steel, right? Um, and I say, okay, what rhymes with eight? And they say gate. And it's amazing how the kids are like, they got it. It's just so quick. So that's a fun thing you can do with your family on a family night. Or if you're teaching a group of youth, I really like it as a teacher because I think it helps give kids confidence so they can remember stuff. That's fun, Mike. I love that. (laughs) Now let's get to our day. Joseph Smith said the following, To every church in past ages, which the Lord recognized to be his, he gave revelations wisely calculated to govern them in the particular situation and circumstances under which they were placed, and to enable them by authority to do the peculiar work which they were to perform. The Bible contains revelations given at different times to different people under different circumstances. The old world was destroyed for rejecting the revelations of God given to them through Noah. The Israelites were destroyed in the wilderness for despising the revelations given to them through Moses. And Christ said that the world in the days of the apostles would be condemned for not receiving the word of God through them. Thus we see that the judgments of God in the past ages have come upon the people not so much for neglecting the revelations given to their forefathers as for rejecting those given immediately to themselves. 
So while the Ten Commandments are still good, I think we need to recognize that because of the generation in which we live, because of our day, we should expect a new set of commandments tailored for our particular situation and our particular circumstances. And that's exactly what we find in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, I'll keep it to a nice list of 10, but if you go through the Doctrine and Covenants, you can find a whole lot of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. So I'm going to present 10, and I'm going to begin with the ones given in Kirtland. Now, if you'll go to section 37 and 38, the Lord sends the saints to Kirtland, Ohio. In verse 32 of section 38, he says, go to the Ohio, and I'm going to do two very significant things. He says, first, I'm going to give you my law. And then secondly, you'll be endowed with power from on high. So we're going to receive a temple through which we are endowed with significant priesthood keys. And then we received a law. Now, if you'll go to section 42 and look at the preface, Joseph Smith specifies section 42 as, quote, embracing the law of the church, that we have a modern day law. So Moses went up and received the law for his people, and in Kirtland, Ohio, symbolically, Joseph Smith went up to his own Sinai and received the law for our day. I love that he starts by pulling a few from the Old Testament. It's like we transition from the Old Testament, and then we're going to add a lot of new ones. So the first one I would give you is in verse 18, section 42, verse 18, thou shalt not kill. Now, he says some things about killing that I don't fully understand. I don't know when killing is forgivable and when it's not. Luckily, there are brilliant people above me that deal with that, and I don't. But there are some circumstances, according to the Lord, where forgiveness is not going to be forgiven you. Verse 20 is commandment number two, thou shalt not steal. And verse 21, thou shalt not lie. So do you kind of see that same list we saw in the Old Testament? Now, the one missing from the Old Testament is the big one, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I love what the Lord does next. Instead of the negative, don't commit adultery, in our day, he gives us a powerful positive. So I would give as a fourth commandment, verse 22 of section 42, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. I love the positive there. There are only two people in the Scriptures we are to love with all our heart. The great commandment is that we love God with all our heart, but the second commandment is that we love human beings, our neighbors, a different level. We love our neighbor as ourself, except for one human being. One human being is taken from that level and moved up to the other level of love. And so God and my spouse are the only two people I am commanded to love with all my heart. And I love what President Kimball said about that commandment where he said, when the Lord says all thy heart, it allows for no sharing, nor dividing, nor depriving And to the woman it is paraphrased, thou shalt love thy husband with all thy heart and shalt cleave unto him and none else. The words none else eliminate everyone and everything. The spouse then becomes preeminent in the life of the husband or wife and neither social life nor occupational life nor political life nor any other interest nor person nor thing shall ever take precedence over the companion spouse. The Lord says, thou shalt cleave unto him and none else. Marriage presupposes total allegiance and total fidelity. Each spouse takes the partner with the understanding that he or she gives totally to the spouse all the heart, strength, loyalty, honor, and affection with all dignity. Any divergence is sin. Any sharing of the heart is transgression. Yeah. Uh, Bryce, I like that this is positive in verse 22. And then in verse 23, I think what I see here is a combination of the ideas taught in Exodus 
but it's also combined with the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus kind of took it to this higher plane where he said not to look upon a woman with lust. And so we kind of have both presented in the 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants combined. And then in verses 24, 25, and 26, it's this, okay, but what if it happens? Then what? And then it's this message of forgiveness and repentance. And so we have a lot of these ideas of the gospel that coalesce in section 42 that aren't really spelled out in Exodus. And so I think this is worthy of examination and considering when we talk about these things, because this is for our time, and kind of understanding it and reading it through that lens gives it more meaning. I love that combination. Isn't that beautiful? It's good. And I find verse 27 to be interesting, where it says, the Lord says, not to speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. There's a lot of rabbinic tradition that speaking evil of someone is worse than many sins because it's so difficult to put back. And even though, you know, we don't read things like section 42, verse 27 in the Ten Commandments, but I think that the spirit of that verse is in there, right? When it talks about bearing false witness or coveting, but I think this verse really kind of helps us rethink about how we communicate. And by the way, even if something is true, if it's speaking evil of my neighbor and it's a true thing, maybe we should rethink that. Like, I think even that would be part of verse 27. Just because it's true doesn't mean you should say it, right? Yeah, if it does them harm. Yeah. If it does them harm, we ought not to say it. So there's our number five. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Now, can I give you a balance to that? Because I think sometimes we take that too far. Sometimes we give as a badge of honor that she never said anything negative about somebody. Mm. And that's a badge of honor. And I love that in the spirit, we're following commandment number five, thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't sit our children down and talk about something that happened that may have been negative and learn the lesson from it. Mormon chapter 9, verse 31, Moroni says, condemn me not because of mine imperfections, nor my father because of his imperfections. Then he adds this, Rather give thanks unto God that our imperfections have been made known unto you so that you can learn to be more wise than we can be. I think there's great value in sitting a child down and saying, can we talk about what that other person did and why we shouldn't do that or what can we learn from that? I think that's a very different discussion than speaking evil of my neighbor and doing them harm. Joseph Smith lost the manuscript a huge chunk of the Book of Mormon. And that story is in the Scripture so that we learn a lesson from that. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, and that story's in the Scripture so that we can learn from it. So I think there's a balance to that. It's not saying don't ever talk about negative things. Teach your children to avoid mistakes of other people. That's a very valuable discussion. But speaking of my neighbor in such a way that it does them harm, I think there's the balance there. Especially in religion. I think Joseph Smith disagreed with people on points of religion, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. Beautifully said. Number six is in verse 30, and it's the precursor to the law of consecration. He says, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support. Now, Mike and I talked a great deal about the law of consecration back in our Doctrine and Covenants podcast. You may want to go back and listen to section 42. We deal with the law of consecration and the multiple steps that is consecration. And back in section 38, we talked about the inner law of consecration, the the desires of my heart that will allow me to remember the poor. And that's a major theme in the latter days. If you go to the Book of Mormon, do you remember King Benjamin? and talks about not supporting the beggar. And then if you'll turn to Amulek's teaching in Alma 34, where he says, after you've done this prayer, after you've prayed unto God, if you don't remember the poor and the needy, your prayer was in vain. So that's a very strong emphasis in our day. Thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy property for their support. That's a big one. The seventh one I would list is in verse 40 of section 42, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Again, if the Book of Mormon has a theme, 
if the Book of Mormon is, tr- is written for our day and is trying to correct modern-day challenges, what does the Book of Mormon have to say about pride? Major theme. And so here we find the Lord saying, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. If you want more on that, I'd recommend the podcast that Mike and I did for Jacob chapter 2 in the Book of Mormon, where we really jumped into pride. What is it, and how do we avoid it? But there's the modern-day commandment, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. I would list as number 8, verse 42, thou shalt not be idle. Now, I will admit, most of my young life, when I read those verses, I assumed that what the Lord was saying is, don't be lazy. Just don't be lazy. And I think there is an element of don't be lazy. But as I've grown up, I've seen that that is a lot deeper. The commandment to not be idle is more than just don't be lazy. What I hear the Lord saying, and you're going to find this theme all throughout the Scriptures, is you take care of you. Don't shift the burden of your maintenance onto someone else. You take care of you. I find it in these words from President Kimball. He says, the responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, and economic well-being rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church if he is a faithful member of the church. No true Latter-day Saint, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life. I love that the Declaration of Independence did not say that we have an unalienable right to happiness. That would suggest that I have a right to happiness and you have to give it to me. What the text of the Declaration of Independence says is that we have an inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. No one else is responsible to make me happy, but I have a right to pursue my own happiness. I think that's the gist of this commandment, is you take care of you. If you are not able to take care of you, turn to your family. If your family cannot take care of you, you can turn to the church. At what point you turn to the government, I think that's a personal decision you have to take. When do I turn to the government for help? When do I turn to the church for help? And when do I just simply say to myself, thank you, everyone, but I can take care of myself and my family. I will not be idle. Kind of reminds me of a story told by Marion G. Romney. And he clipped it from the Reader's Digest. I remember reading the Reader's Digest when I was a kid. So here's the story that he's going to read. He says, In our friendly neighbor city of St. Augustine, great flocks of seagulls are starving amid plenty. Fishing is still good, but the gulls don't know how to fish. For generations, they have depended on the shrimp fleet to toss them scraps from the nets. But now the fleet has moved. The shrimpers created a welfare state for the seagulls. These big birds never bothered to learn how to fish for themselves, and they've never taught their children to fish. Instead, they led their little ones to the shrimp nets. Now the seagulls, the fine free birds that almost symbolize liberty itself, are starving to death because they gave in to the something-for-nothing lure. They sacrificed their independence for a handout. A lot of people are like that, too. They see nothing wrong in picking delectable scraps from the tax nets of the U.S. government's shrimp fleet. But what will happen when the government runs out of goods? What about our children of generations to come? Let's not be gullible goals. We must preserve our talents of self-sufficiency, our genius for creating things for ourselves, our sense of thrift, and our love of independence. So let's move on to number nine, verse 45 of section 42. I love this. Thou shalt live together in love. 
insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those who have not hope of a glorious resurrection. That's the kind of people we should be. Thou shalt live together in love. I would love it if that were the reputation of the Latter-day Saints that they are faithful to their spouses, they don't speak evil of their neighbor, they take care of the poor, they take care of themselves, and they live together in love, insomuch that they weep over the loss of anyone, and especially someone who doesn't have a hope of a glorious resurrection. That's a beautiful commandment. Now, let me just throw one more in. In section 59, verses 5 and 6, he does summarize them again, saying, Wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, mind, and strength, and in the name of Jesus Christ thou shalt serve him. There's the summary of the great commandment. And then in verse 6 is the other one, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he repeats quite a few, thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor kill, nor do anything like unto it. And then he throws this one on that is not found in the original Ten Commandments at Sinai. Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. And again, that's also a major theme of the restoration is gratitude. The Lord will say in this very same section, verse 21, in nothing doth men offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things and obey not his commandments. So I would list that as a tenth one. Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. Thankfulness and gratitude is the shortcut through the pride cycle that avoids pride, sin, and pain. It allows us to take our blessings and jump right to humility. Instead of our prosperity leading to pride, gratitude is the shortcut that allows us to go from prosperity to humility and avoid the negatives of the pride cycle. It is a powerful thought of what could happen if we are grateful to God for our blessings. So there's my list of 10 some from the Old Testament, but a lot of new ones. Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart, cleave unto him or her and unto none else. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. So much of this has to do with taking care of our neighbor, remembering the poor and consecrating, living together in love, thanking the Lord, being a thankful, grateful people. In addition to any commandments that may have come up in the past, these are the commandments specific to our day and the challenges that we face that the Lord would have us obey as well. Now, if you're wondering about some of the difficult-to-interpret passages at the end of Exodus 20, after the Ten Commandments are given, the idea that they're to build altars but not with any tools and not with hewn stones, or what's going on with the altar not having steps— If you're interested, go read the show notes and you can kind of get some ideas as to what's going on there. It's good, I think, as a teacher to know the stuff behind the text in case you get asked questions, but not necessarily that you would teach it, but that you know it. You should always, as a teacher, know more than what you're teaching. So go there, check it out if that interests you. So that really is our podcast today. We're going to wrap it up here knowing that we're going to be together next time in Exodus 24 when some individuals are going to go to the top of the mount and see God and have a feast. And then we will also do 31 through 34. So next week, we're going to skip some significant sections. We're going to skip Exodus 21 through 23 and 25 through 30. So just know that from here on out... We're going to jump a lot. There's Yeah. I mean, frankly, the Old Testament is a big book that we're not going to be covering every single chapter. Mike and I will try and do our best to give you the best of what's not in Come Follow Me as well as the best of what is. But be patient with us. We may skip stuff that you think, oh, why did you guys skip this? And just know these are decisions that you have to make as a teacher too. When you teach this stuff, you can't teach it all. So we're we're going to do our best. But with that, we thank you for your time. And we hope that this podcast was useful to you in your Come Follow Me preparation and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. 
We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.